Welcome, book clubbers. It's good to have you with us, all you clubbers. I'm Charlie Gibson, along with my co-host. Kate Gibson, who I don't know what we're clubbing. I don't know what club I have. I don't know. Are we talking about the eight? Like, I don't know where the clubbing's going, but there you go. I am a member of your club. I club with you. All right. <laughs> this is getting a little <laughs> inane. Uh, our guest today is James Comey. That is a name well-known to Americans, and he's a controversial name. But he has decided, and we'll get into this in a minute, he has decided, having suddenly found himself out of a job in 2017, that he would be a novelist. Now, that's not easy to do when you haven't done it before, but we'll get into it because he's done a nice job. And we came to this novel. Well, we've known about this novel for a long, long time before its publication, right? Yeah. You know, this was one of those things where a bookstore owner we know and love, Otto Penzler, who runs the Mysterious Bookshop, and who we've had contact with on and off throughout our year on the air. And he said, uh, you got to take a look at the new James Comey mystery. And I think we both turned around and said, James Comey, James Comey, James Comey. And he said, yeah, James Comey, James Comey. And I think we both sort of said, yeah, sure, fine. We'll take a look at it when it comes out. And we had the same, you know, thought, which is, oh, good. Celebrity decides they're going to write a novel. I mean, he's not your average celebrity. But, you know, normally uh, when vanity projects happen, uh, they're vanity projects. So when we read it, we were both really pleased to find out that it was a page turner whose ending I did not guess, which I think for a first time novelist is pretty impressive. The name of the book is Central Park West. But Kate's right. We looked at it skeptically because, as you'll hear, James Comey says to us, that he didn't read fiction for 30 years. So why would he think he could write it? This is a really good mystery. It is well plotted and it gives you wonderful verisimilitude to what it's like to be the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, which he was, to be in the FBI, which he was. And of course, he was the head of the FBI. And as I mentioned, a controversial figure because, well, the Hillary Clinton people were upset with him when he had a very famous news conference shortly before the 2016 election. And then the Trump people were down on him because Trump wanted him to make a pledge of loyalty to Trump. Trump, as you may recall, called him to a dinner and said, give me a pledge of loyalty, and he wouldn't do it. And Trump fired him. So he had everybody mad at him there. I love the idea of political neutrality just coming from everybody hating you an equal amount on both sides. That's <laughs> uh, that's good. That's it's, 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 in some ways it's a, a pretty impressive. Well, you'll, as you'll hear, he's a very engaging fellow. Yeah. And the book is quite good. And you will see some characters that you might recognize or some statements that you might recognize in the book. We enjoyed talking to him, and we talked to him along with, as Katie mentioned, Otto Penzler, who is his publisher, is the owner of the Mysterious Bookshop, and who read the book and thought right away he wanted to publish James Comey's book. And, well, he should have, because it's a good read. Central Park West, our conversation with the former FBI director, James Comey. James Comey, it is such a pleasure and an honor to have you in the bookcase, your new novel, Central Park West, which we're really excited to talk to you about. But before we start, we're pretty new to the podcast field. We're only about a year old. 
We're new to the scene. You have your choice of book podcasts. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind taking a pledge of honest loyalty to the bookcase. Just, you know, for, for future reference. Does it come with a free dinner? <laughs> if, if required. <laughs> you know me, I'm an easy date. So, of course, I promise my loyalty to you, Mr. Pre- I'm sorry, podcast. <laughs> well, that's, that's very good. Sometimes, Jim, sometimes a work of fiction or a movie will carry the admonition, this is a work of fiction. Any resemblance to people living or dead is purely coincidental. Can that be said about Central Park West? Only part of it can be said. It's a work of fiction, but it's inspired by real people that I knew and worked with. And it's about real places that I investigated and tried cases in. So only partly true. There's a former New York governor who has trouble keeping it zipped up. Anyone in particular in mind? That's, uh, obviously, that's completely, completely. Uh, fiction. <laughs> Any resemblance to anyone living or dead is coincidental. When you were doing all of these incredible, amazing jobs that you've had, I mean, were you always writing this book in your mind or was this when you were done? Hey, I think I'll write a book. I've always kind of captured stories, but I never planned to write them. And I definitely never planned to write fiction. (laughs) I had a real hard time reading fiction, especially anything related to crime or terrorism or espionage for 30 years. I read Tarot's Presumed Innocent in 87, just before I became a federal prosecutor. And I don't think I read another piece of fiction like that for 30 years. And it wasn't until I got farther, that one of the many good things about being fired is that I got (laughs) farther from the work faster than I expected. And it became easier to think about writing stories at all and writing stories that were, um, at least in part, imagination. I'm fascinated. Katie and I have talked to a number of people who suddenly found themselves idle as you did, (laughs) and had time on their hands and said to themselves, well, I think I'll write a bestseller. And they do. And uh, that's, first of all, there's there's some hubris in all of that. But secondly, it's very gutsy, I think, just to think you can do it. Did you just think I can do it? Definitely not. I was (laughs) idle unexpectedly very fast in May of 2017. (laughs) It took a long time for me to be willing to give it a shot. So I don't know whether this is going to be a bestseller. I'm nervous about it. I've found writing fiction so fun, harder than nonfiction, but so fun that I want to do this for a living. So I'm I'm nervous because I want it to work so that I can write more and more. But it was never part of a plan. One of the things about procedural thrillers and mysteries, you know, television shows and movies, it's all sort of fast and there's not a lot of the bureaucracy and procedure that it actually takes to do all of these things. Now, you have witnessed more than your share. So I guess my question is, how did you know when to sort of be illustrative of the procedure and when to say, ooh, 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 I've taken you to the DMV. We're now at the DMV and I'm, I'm walking you through everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a great question. What I tried to do with this book was write an exciting book that's entertaining and holds attention, but also that's real. Someone said to me the other day that a lot of crime fiction generates excitement by having prosecutors or investigators go rogue. And people don't go rogue in this book, but I still think it's pretty exciting. And the reason is that was my lived experience. I Doing mob cases in New York as a federal prosecutor was really exciting and I didn't go rogue. And so I thought, can I tell that story that's real and still make it exciting? And the answer is, yeah, because I that was my life. Mm-hmm. And 
And so I try to offer procedure. You start with the trial of a mob boss, Dominic the Nose D'Amico. I love his name, who seems destined for conviction when he passes a note to the prosecutors. Occurs early, so I'm not giving any spoiler away. He passes a note to the prosecutor saying, I can give you information on the killing of that governor if you cut me some slack. Have you ever seen a similar situation where defendants who seem on the way to conviction will do that kind of thing to see if they can't lessen their sentence? Yes. And I drew that from two real life experiences. One I was involved in directly, one that I was the beneficiary of. But Sammy the Bull Gravano was the number two in the Gambino crime family in the early 90s. And during his prosecution, got a secret message to the government that he wanted to cooperate. And the judge appointed a shadow counsel without telling his actual lawyer to negotiate a deal with the government that totally shocked the mob lawyers. And then I also prosecuted a bunch of mobsters when I was in New York. And I remember one of them who was a hitman one day in court passed me a note congratulating me because he'd seen in the paper that I'd gotten recognized by the New York bar as sort of federal prosecutor of the year. And he wrote this note saying, Mr. Comey, congratulations on your award. It is well-deserved. And I think it was both a way of him showing I abide by a code of honor, but I think it was also a bit of a dance about cooperation. Was this the first step to become a cooperator? Now, he ultimately decided not to. But so I drew that experience from two things that really happened. I'm interested. We we talk to novelists and we ask them whether or not they sort of make it up as they go along or whether or not they're a very careful plotter. How did you approach this book when you sat down to write it? Did you have everything all outlined out or were you like, well, let's see where this goes? No, I had the story from start to end in vision. So the destination that I was driving towards, and that's thanks to my amazing wife, it was her idea. And we sat and talked about it talked about what the characters would be. And then I went and wrote a summary of it and she critiqued it and we went back and forth. Did you know how big of a part of the process your wife was going to be? Like when you sat down to do this, were you like, hey man, we're going to be doing this every day and you're going to be doing it with me. Buckle up. (laughs) I didn't. And that's one of the things that's made it something I really want to do. It was a ton of fun to do with her. She has read tons of fiction. She's a fiction reader. I've long been a nonfiction reader and she has great story vision. And she would, when I'd write something that I thought was awesome, she'd write, look, I'm every reader and this is no good. (laughs) And so you got to do this better. Or she'd notice that my, the tone of some of my characters were drifting and she would write something like, no, Nora wouldn't say that. Benny might, wouldn't say that. You got to go and make that more like them. And so it was fun. It's great to have someone tell you the truth. It's both more painful and easier when they the love of your life. I'm curious about the contrast of your careers. When you're U.S. attorney, when you're head of the FBI, that is such a collaborative process. And you have so many people working to hand their work product to you as the U.S. attorney or even as the head of the FBI. But writing is a solitary act. Did you adjust well to that change and did you miss the former? I naturally adjusted well because I actually heard Harlan Coben describe himself this way. And I agree, it applies to me. I'm a socially adept introvert. (laughs) That is, I can do all the public stuff and speeches and conferences, but I I really want to be sitting looking out at my backyard. And and so to The solitary part appealed to me, but it also posed the same danger I felt as FBI director. How do I get people to tell me the truth, (laughs) right? When you're FBI director, they stand up when you come in the room. So getting them to tell you when you suck is a real (laughs) challenge. And And when you're alone, it's hard to find people to tell you suck. Now, luckily, I have a family that embraces that challenge 
uh, really well. <laughs> and so it's not just Patrice, but my five kids all read drafts of my writing and love me enough to tell me the truth. And then I have a circle of friends who know the business and also delight in telling me when I suck. And so that it's one of the reasons that Otto Penzler was the perfect publisher for me. He loves to tell people when they suck. So it was I faced the same challenge, maybe sometimes even a little bit more. I wasn't at the top of a steep hill as as I was at FBI director. But being alone, there's a real risk. You won't find out that you're not as awesome as you think you are. You're talking to one of the people in my family who does exactly that for me <laughs> and often and has done it for many years. The um protagonist in your book, Nora Carlton. At the beginning, she says she gets chills the first time she rose in court and said, Nora Carlton for the United States, your honor. Did you? And do you still? Or did you still? Yes. I remember the moment when I first rose and said that, and I felt chills running up the back of my neck. And I've asked uh, Maureen what she experienced, and she experienced the same thing. And so, yes, is the answer. And I did the physical sense of chill went away, but I loved having the opportunity to be in public service. And I hired a lot of young people as prosecutors and I would tell them, it's a great gift to be able to do work with moral content. Your only obligation is to try and do the right thing. And that's a, it isn't a great living, but it's a heck of a life. Mm. I was going to ask you about how much of this book was about missing the inside of a courtroom. A lot, actually. I think that's mm. a great question because I found myself going in my mind's eye to the courtroom. And it was a weird crossover because I prosecuted John and Joe Gambino in courtroom 318 in the old federal courthouse in Manhattan. And when I was writing this book, Maureen was on her feet in that courtroom prosecuting Glenn Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein's co-conspirator. In 318. And I was forbidden to go. She said it would be a thing, Dad, if you come. And so I didn't go. But Patrice went and I got the report secondhand. And so there was all kinds of reasons why it was so great to close my eyes and go to 318 because I could see my little girl who was a little girl when I was doing mob <laughs> cases. Now a grown up and, and doing something incredibly important in that same place. So, yes, is the answer. Do you have in your mind making your protagonist, Nora Carlton, and her investigative sidekick, Benny Dugan. Do you have in mind making this into a series? I do. I've already written the second book. It's gone through the family ringer. It's now out to the brutalizing friends. <laughs> and it involves Nora and Benny again. And I picture a trilogy based in New York. And then I'd love to move to some of the other worlds that I've known and worked in. Richmond, Virginia, for many years as a prosecutor and DC, obviously. And I'd love to be able to do trilogies in those places that always can always return. But yes, so the, there will be more Nora and Benny uh, in books to come. One of the themes of this book is a sense, pretty intense, actually, sense of rivalry between federal authorities and local authorities, particularly in this case, the NYPD. How real is that? Is there a healthy tension between local investigators and federal authorities? Is it healthy or is it counterproductive? It ebbs and flows over time. A lot of the time it's healthy competition, talented people looking to do the same work, which drives them both to be better. It occasionally swerves into dysfunction that the taxpayers would not be happy about <laughs> and, <laughs> and then flows back. When I first became U.S. attorney, the relationship was at a low point with the DA's office. And so I would invite Bob Morgenthau, then the DA, legendary DA, to lunch. And we would walk to lunch together at Forlini's, where 
as if my imposter complex weren't strong enough. We <laughs> sat in a booth that was dedicated to him and <laughs> and I would try and build a relationship, which was tricky because he was very hard of hearing and he would ask for <laughs> updates on sensitive things that we were doing together. <laughs> And I would whisper and he'd say, what? And I'd say, well, Bob, it's a, you know, it's kind of a, and, and so it was really hard, but the, it was worth the work to try and get it back to the, we're just competitors. We're not trying to stab each other. And so it, it can be either of those states. I would say mostly it's a healthy competition. Another thing I took away from Central Park West, if the FBI goes after you, you're pretty much toast. But what sticks in your mind as U.S. attorney and FBI director, the crimes that were solved, the crimes that were not solved, or the crimes where you perhaps knew who did it and it couldn't be prosecuted? What lasts with you after many years? The crimes involving, and I'm going to try to say this without getting emotional because I, I get emotional when I think about it, the crimes involving children that were not solved, haunt me the most. And, and because of that, the, the one time that we saved a six-year-old girl kidnapped by a stranger is one of the most memorable moments of my mm -hmm. life. And when they walked in and slapped a picture of the little girl having been found in the woods, chained by her neck to a tree, oh. and looking up at the camera, and they said, because so, I'd followed this case, and, and not just because I'm a father of five, but I followed, I'm a human being, so I followed this case. And they slapped this picture down in front of me and said, oh, we found her. Oh. And I, I started to cry, and I couldn't speak. And I just held my hand up to the agent who had given me the picture, and he started to walk away, and he turned and looked back. I remember it as if it was yesterday. He looked at me and said, boss, this is one of the good days. And I still couldn't speak, but it's a moment that stuck with me because of the pain of the kids we don't save. And so those are the things. That's, that's, my, that's my reaction. Most of your lead characters are women. Are they of increasing importance in law enforcement and in the FBI? They are, and they should be. And I say it that way to reflect that there isn't enough, especially leadership roles, the presence of women in places like the FBI. It was one of my, one of the reasons I grieve having been fired because the FBI needed to change and we were making progress to change. So the answer is yes, they are. They're particularly significant that the female representation in a place like the Southern District of New York is striking and wonderful. I say that obviously because I've been surrounded by strong, tall, uh, highly <laughs> intelligent women all my life. I have four daughters and my wife, who is not tall, but is the other thing. And, but not most of the supervisors in the Southern District of New York are now women. And I think more than 50% of the prosecutors are women. And that makes the place better for all kinds of reasons. The Bureau is not good enough because it has not succeeded at attracting enough women to agent roles and people of color, both men and women, to agent roles. One of the other things in the novel, as Nora gets into investigating the mob, there are threats on her life. And I know and, and read about and regret cases now where there are attacks on prosecutors and particularly on judges, which I find amazing. Is this just a reality now, do you think, of modern day conditions? And how can we protect people in those roles? I think it's a reality. Another one that ebbs and flows. And I think we're at a place now in a 
polarized, angry America, one where people are trapped, including people are trapped in really bizarre, dangerous confirmation bubbles, but where people are all trapped in some sort of confirmation bubble, where in the ebbing and flowing, it, it's uh, we're in an, at a low point when it comes to respect for institutions and threats towards people. And so it's very difficult. The U.S. Marshal Service, the Secret Service, the FBI spent a lot of time trying to anticipate the threats. The problem is this. The people who are going to hurt you are unlikely to threaten you first. Mm. And so I would tell people that the ones that are writing you or calling you or in your DMs, those are really not the ones that you ought to be most worried about. It's the ones who are motivated from the word go to try to hurt you. And there, we did all kinds of things when I was in government to try and find ways to protect judges, alarm systems and things. But really, it was about trying to convince them to live a life that you don't want to live, but that we all kind of should live a life in yellow. That is, live a life that's not in orange or red where you're fighting for your life, but it's not white. White Living a life in white is standing on a platform at midnight with your headphones on, texting while waiting for your train. The life of yellow is an awareness of the threat and a knowledge that I should not be a person of pattern. But I don't know why people walk their dogs the same route every night. Don't ever do that. Don't become easy to follow and to watch because the ones you have to worry about, they're not writing to you. They're following you and watching mm-hmm. you. So make it hard for them. But convincing federal judges who don't who don't like to be told to do anything, that they ought to live a patternless life and they ought to live a life of awareness is, is hard. It's hard. But that, to my mind, that's the path to relative safety. But look, here's the depressing part. There's no safe. There's only more safe and less safe. And to be more safe, people need to live a life of awareness. They often don't. At the end, you say there's a quote, we've had bad people in high office for a long time, starting with some presidents in my lifetime I could name, and somehow we stumble on. Are you just making that up? Yeah, that's obviously total fiction. We, In <laughs> recent time, we haven't had an amoral narcissist who's a threat to all the values of America. So that's just fiction, surely. <laughs> you really shouldn't talk about Mother Teresa that way, Mr. Comey. That's not, that's not nice. All right, James Comey, thank you ever so much for joining us. The book is Central Park West. It comes out May 30th, and we truly appreciate your being with us. I look forward to seeing the response to this book. I think think you got a winner. And I didn't guess the ending. Just point that out. (laughs) That's great. I guess that's great. That's great. It's great to be with you both. Thanks for this. It's a treat. All right. Good to talk to you. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. 
Where did that wisdom come from? And does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid-fire questions for James Comey. What do TV and movie dramas get wrong most often about being in court that gets on your nerves? Oh, nobody begins a cross-examination or a, an address to the jury while sitting at counsel table. <laughs> <laughs> Best piece of advice you got before or while writing Central Park West. Don't fall in love with your own writing. Hmm. Be prepared to drown some of your puppies. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen King calls it killing your darlings. Most ridiculous government acronym you've ever heard. That the leader of the FBI in New York, the assistant director in charge, is actually called the A-Dick. <laughs> <laughs> to his face or her face. To his face. I mean, and would introduce... Him or herself that way. Hi, I'm the A-Dick in New York. <laughs> in your mind or imagination, is there such a thing as a perfect crime? There's not a perfect crime, but there are crimes that can be committed with very low risk of apprehension. And so close. Best piece of advice that you would give or have given to new FBI agents? Recognize that you have the power to do great good. And the flip side of it is you have the power, if that is misused, to do great harm. Who would you like to have play you in the movie? Someone tall. <laughs> <laughs> could you... Um, Which is not could, an easy thing in Hollywood to find. No. Could, you, could you... There goes Tom Cruise. Um, could, you, could you pass the FBI training exams at Quantico? I... Don't think I could because of the running piece. At this point in my life, my knee, my knees uh, wouldn't stand up for it. I think I could probably handle the rest, the push-ups and sit-ups and whatnot. Most influential book in your life? Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's Moral Man, Immoral Society. Uh, I had the honor of taking a course from him Wow! when I was in college and know the book well. It helped me as a college kid channel a sense of darkness I had from some life experience and channel it in a positive direction. I mean, Niebuhr's essential message is, yeah, people suck. So what? <laughs> right? Try to try to make the world a better place. And here's why you should do it. A little quiz for you. Who was Ephraim Zimbalist Jr.? He was the star of the television program, the FBI, in the late 60s into just about the mid 70s. Extra credit. Do you know the name of his character? Oh, gosh. No. Neither did my father. I'm sure he looked this up. Not sitting here. It's not it's it's not coming to me. No, that's I had to look it up. I watched that every week, but Lewis Erskine was his name, Inspector Lewis Erskine. Okay. And another part of the quiz, who who played J. Edgar in the movie J. Edgar in 2011? Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, as I recall. Very good. Very good. <laughs> and finally a question, Jim, that we took from Stephen Colbert, but I think it's quite illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Five words. He is a great grandfather. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Otto Penzler is joining us along with Jim Comey. Otto, his publisher, as he mentioned a moment ago, and someone who did not hesitate 
to tell him when he was off course or to tell him no. Otto, Jim is a first-time mystery writer, and you're a publisher. You know mystery writing well. Have you ever taken a chance on a first-time mystery writer before? Well, I've been in publishing for 45 years, so I've published a lot of first novels. But I will say this, and I realize this sounds like something a publisher would say, especially in front of his own author. (laughs) Cross my heart, I have never published a first novel that was anywhere as good as Jim's. Whoa, that's high praise. Aww. How did you guys meet? Mr. Comey's agent offered me the book, which I immediately liked and wanted to make a deal for. And should I keep calling you Mr. Comey? Definitely not, Otto. Call me, well, don't call me what you normally call me. Just call me Jim. Uh, But before we we signed the deal, Jim said, I'd like to meet this guy. It had become clear that Jim wanted to make mystery writing his career. And we met, and rightly so. He was meeting somebody who was going to have an impact, either positively or negatively, on his future. And we met at lunch, and we had questions of each other. My first was, how do you take editing? Mm, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> you know, listen, this, this man ran the FBI. And, you know, th- there are a lot of different personalities of people in powerful positions. And I would say that it's, that it's not overly common for somebody to welcome being told what to do and, and to, would you change this and fix this? And Jim's response was exactly what any editor would want to hear, which is, I welcome suggestions. I, I welcome help. And we got along well from then. And then the first thing I said after that was, well, then let me tell you the first thing that I think I need you to do in this book. <laughs> True story. Which was what, Jim? I think it was about, he had a number of things, but my recollection of the first was you are, this isn't, these are my words, but this is an architectural digest. You are spending way too much time describing the buildings and the physical setting. So you got to knock that off. (laughs) Those are my words, not autos. I did not say that. (laughs) Well, it was kind of like an arranged marriage. Both of our families had talked, uh, knew us well, and thought that we would work well together. My agent, Kirby Kim, knew what I was looking for and knew my obsession is hearing the truth. And the older you get and the more prominent you get, the harder it is, which is why my family's played such a key role for me. And so he knew, I remember him saying to me one day, Otto is not going to hesitate to tell you the truth. And I said, I crave that. That's wonderful. And so when I went to the lunch, we sat outside because we were still in a COVID environment and I would be banned from seeing my grandchildren if I sat inside during that period of time. So we sat outside at a restaurant in the West Village, as I recall. And It was a little cold, but immediately I knew that this was the right person for me. First of all, it sounds like a date, but we both ordered the same wine, I think, and the same appetizers. (laughs) But it was, but immediately we connected because he was not going to BS me and not going to shave corners off. He was going to tell me what he thought. And I might disagree, but he was going to give it to me straight. And I was, I remember calling Kirby after that saying is exactly what I had wanted. I wanted to ask Otto the same question that I asked Jim, which is, you know, it strikes me that when you have a storyteller who's had this much experience in courtrooms, that you're going to have to work on balancing the realism, the stuff he really knows, all the procedural stuff with the drama. How did you strike that? I've asked him about it as a writer. How did you strike that balance as an editor? I had the easiest job in the world (laughs) because Jim found that balance himself. Mm. And I'm not totally familiar with courtroom I mean, courtroom procedures, 
I watch Law and Order, but, <laughs> but that's about the extent of my knowledge, having spent very little time having been arrested. So I don't really know what, what happens in the room, but everything that, that Jim wrote seemed real to me. And I didn't need to say, well, you know, this is overly detailed or this isn't detailed enough. Jim found the perfect balance because he really is. And, and I'm, I swear, I'm not blowing smoke. He really has the storytelling ability as well as being a good writer to tell the story in a way that is captivating all the way through. And I'll just say as an aside, because I don't want to not be able to say this at some point, I read basically was willing to make this deal having read 40 pages of book that told what the story was going to be. And I said, this is great. The 40 pages show that he could write. And the outline said, oh, he's got a really good story. But what I did not expect, and the book is better than I expected, which almost sounds insulting, but I don't mean it to be. <laughs> it sounds, it, it came out even better than expected because the characters came to life. You can't tell that in 40 pages and you can't tell it from an outline. But the characters were so fully and wonderfully developed. And Jim did something that a lot of writers after 40 books can't do, gave each of them a voice. And if you've read the book, you know, you didn't even have to be told who was speaking because you could recognize their language, their cadences, their voices. And that is a remarkable ability that very few writers have. All right. That's all the time we have. Thank you for coming. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't pay much attention to blurbs. I mean, those quotes on the back of a book that say this is the greatest mystery since Sherlock Holmes. But in this case, there's some pretty heady names in the mystery world who have blurbed Jim's book. Uh, Harlan Coben, Michael Conley, Ian Rankin, Jeffrey Deaver. Who, get, who gets those? Who collects those? Does the author have to do it or does the publisher have to do it? And do you have to twist any arms? <laughs> uh, I, I got all of them. I think Jim asked Harlan Coben and I asked the others. I would say that they're I mean, to be totally candid, I wish I could know know a different way to speak. To be totally candid, there were a couple of people who were hesitant. Let me say that. So we didn't have to go to arm twisting. But what I did do was if they were a little hesitant, I would say, OK, I understand. You know, Jim is, is a somewhat controversial figure. And so I understand if you're a little nervous, but just do me a favor. Here's the manuscript. Just start reading. And if you don't want to do it after you've read a reasonable amount, don't. But be fair and just start reading. And no one said, you know, I've read it and I'm not going to give a blurb. Everybody who started reading it gave me a blurb, gave mm. Jim a blurb, however you want to look at it. Well, you've certainly answered my question about whether it was the familiarity that the public has with Jim Comey or, or maybe even in some minds, notoriety or the quality of Central Park West that caused you to want to publish the book. And as Kate and I read it, it was a wise decision that you both made. Thank you both for being with yeah. us. Jim Comey, yeah. Otto Penzler. The book, once again, Central Park West in bookstores everywhere or better bookstores everywhere, as they say in advertisements on May 30th. I look forward to the second one, by the way, very much. Yeah, so do I. So do I. All right. Hard at work. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Kate. Our conversation with Jim Comey and his publisher, Otto Penzler. You know, Kate, I think it's interesting. This is a really, really good first effort, but it's better than a first effort. I mean, I think it stands on its own. If this were, a, you know, his fourth or fifth novel, you would say this is really, really 
good. And it's kind of amazing that a guy who just decides, you know, I, I got kicked out of the FBI. Uh, so I think I'll be a fiction writer. Yeah. Like you do. <laughs> like you do. And a good one. Yeah. I love the idea that he's, you know, he basically becomes the nation's top cop. He rises to the very top of law and order and the Justice Department. And then he says, hey, I think I'll write a book, which, you know, if you're going to venture into the world of the arts, you know, it's just it's it's not a, it's not an insignificant challenge. And I I would say to our listeners, no matter how you feel about the man, I was a huge, huge, huge Dick Wolf Law and Order fan. I used to sit there and watch the dunk, the dunk, the dunk over and over and over and over again. If you like Dick Wolf, if you like his procedural dramas, you will like this book. This is like a great Law & Order episode from a fantastic insider's perspective. And it's a page turner. And like I say, I didn't see it coming. There was very little cliche and I really enjoyed it. Well plotted. It is a mystery. It is a courtroom thriller with good characters, which as he says, he intends to continue in future books. I think you're right. It's a good read, worth a read. Even if it's written by somebody who's famous, some would say infamous, it doesn't just stand on that. It stands on its own merits. Again, Central Park West is the name of the book. James Comey, the author, and it publishes May 30th. You tell us who's responsible for this podcast, and then Jim will have a bit of a coda at the end. The Bookcase with Kate and Charlie Gibson is a production of ABC Audio. It's produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer, and Laura Mayer is our executive producer. We give special thanks to Josh Cohen, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. When I was a high school kid, I used to carry this in my wallet, and I've since long ago memorized it. It's been really important to me. Emerson once said, it's easy in the world to live after the world's opinion. It's easy in solitude to live after one's own. But the great person is the one who, in the midst of the crowd, keeps with perfect sweetness the independence of solitude. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>